1: We go back again with the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast, and I've been real excited. We've had great weather here, had some warmer conditions that just made it feel great to get out and walk around and do some habitat work. Um, found a shed just tonight. I was pulling soil tests some food plots. I was I was uh, testing my UTV out. So for work, I have a, a hydraulic probe that has a generator running with hydraulic lines up to this probe, and it's a there's a drill head mechanism that drops the probe down in and it sounds like a little bit overkill when you're talking about pulling soil tests, but being an agronomist, I literally pull thousands of cores and, and hundreds of soil tests every year. And uh, when you're talking about doing it from dark to dark, it just makes your job look a little bit smoother, a little bit easier on your back. But uh, anyway, I have this UTV and I'm just like disgusted with this thing I punctured a radiator, driving through a field, uh, the sorghum stalks were... Uh, sticking up and they're just really hard and punctured through the radiator. And finally got it back from the shop that the radiator was fixed and it's still overheating. And I'm driving around in the food plot and it's overheating. So I shut the machine off and decided I was going to walk around a little bit. And would you know, I found a shed of probably what's going to be the number one hitless buck next season. It was a deer that Uh, I talked about in an earlier podcast this year that in our late Flintlock muzzleloader season stepped out into the field at 50 yards and I, I had to swallow a lump in my throat that just struggled to go down and let that deer walk. I didn't have to, but you know, I agreed with, uh, with my hunting partners that this was a deer we wanted to let go and get to that next age class. And uh, I measured that antler tonight and it was 62 and a half inches. So assuming that uh, his other side and spread were the same, which they are, he, he was right in that 140 mark. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be flat out honest with you. There's no way I would have passed that deer had it not been for the fact that I killed the 170 last year. So it's, it was, it killed me, but it was really exciting to know that he made it through. And the fact that I got to pick his shed up walking in a food plot for those reasons was really, really exciting. So you know, we got to do some, uh, some habitat work. We're, we're planning out a new food plot location and, uh, outline that, outline the access to the stand location. And we started cutting some trees. We're going to get in the dozer up here pretty soon to clear out once, uh, once the ground's thawed out and, uh, the trees we were cutting were just for screening and just making sure we can get that all taken care of. And just really good to feel, uh, feel that chainsaw work and seeing trees fall it's just it's a it's just a great feeling um and one of the things i've been talking about with uh with friends with clients and uh just having general conversation with guys is winter deer survival you know we had some crazy weather patterns you know if you listen to our episode with Steve Shirk we had uh you know he was talking about some some big snowfall followed by some ice and you know that can be a little stressful on our deer herd and uh I figured who better than to talk about this than Pennsylvania native Kip Adams. And Kip is just a wealth of knowledge there at the National Deer Association. And, you know, he's very well in tune to what's going on in the state of Pennsylvania. So this week we talk all things winter feeding um, and how that might not be the best solution for your deer herd. Um, Talking about options in habitat management and preparation and actually biology of a whitetail and what they need to get through a winter so sit back and i hope you enjoy this episode i was just curious uh how was your hunting season this past year
0: we had a good year um actually we had a we had a really good archery season um a slower rifle season um it was it was so warm. and i'm right up here in the the new york border mitchell <laughs> in Tioga county it uh, it was so warm, even through most of our rifle season, that uh, definitely changed some of the deer movement patterns. So uh, my camp shot a bunch of deer. Um, we only shot one of the older bucks that we had seen uh, during the summer and early fall into archery season. Um, but uh, uh, we have a bunch of kids at our camp. We bring a bunch of others in, uh, adults and kids to hunt. So uh, overall, we had a good year. Um, not as good from the older buck end as we typically do, but, uh, um, still a very good year.
1: That's good to hear. Um, you know, looking towards this end of the hunting season and, you know, running trail cameras and stuff, have, did you see a, a, a pretty good recruitment of younger deer that made it through that, uh, that rifle season and, you know, are going to be candidates for next year?
0: I I don't have pictures of most of those right now, but, um, but yes, I, I believe so. Um, I, I've, get a, with all of our neighboring landowners, uh, every year after the season, then to the tune of folks that, that own somewhere north of 4,000 acres. Okay. So lots and lots of landowners every year, um, provide me the numbers of bucks they shot, does they shot and bears they shot. So I, I put together a report for our camp numbers and I share it with all of our neighbors just to keep it, an eye on, okay, here's kind of what got shot in the neighborhood this year. So, uh, um buck harvest was way down in the neighborhood and um so that that's going to lend well to a lot of those deer just getting one year older and uh so yeah this uh, this upcoming deer season ought, ought to have uh, even more bucks than we typically have available so ought to be really good.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Kudos to you for that neighborhood stuff. Um you know, you, you sparked a, a thought in my mind. You talked about the bear harvest in your area and, uh, <clears throat> you being in that part of the, the, the state, I was curious if you've got, um, if you had a, a abnormal beech crop year, and the reason I ask that is, I, I do some hunting myself in Lycoming County, where we have uh, a, a pretty much a beech birch maple forest. And we had a substantially larger beech nut crop with a larger bear harvest in that area. I, I'm curious if if you saw that, and if there's any thought to that, and having uh, changes in deer harvest. <laughs>
0: Well, bears certainly love beach nuts. Um, our property doesn't have that much beach. Okay. So, uh, a good or poor beach crop doesn't impact us much at all. Um, our neighborhood has certainly has some beach, but, uh, far more oak than beach. So, uh, you know, boom or bust acorn crops have, have much larger impacts on, on what we see. Um, from the bear end, though, more than anything else, um, uh, I live in an area that has very narrow valleys with mountains on both sides. The valleys are very fertile, and there's a lot of ag that happens, and uh, the, the bear harvest is much more regulated based on where the standing corn is left in the valleys. The Where I live is some of the earliest fields to dry out, so the farmers typically are those are the first that get planted in corn and the first that are harvested. So this past fall, they were literally combined in, in, in late September. Okay. Which just blows my mind. You know, I remember when we used to have standing corn, you know, in December, you know, in our rifle season. So I'm at one end of the neighborhood, as I say, at the opposite end, um, which is a few miles away. Um, they typically always have standing corn still as we get into our a firearm bear season. So uh, what we often see is lots of bears through the summer and early fall, and then uh, as if that corn at the other end has not been combined, we really see a movement of bears away from us. And uh, the landowners at the other end of that block that that I me- that I measure um, tend to, to shoot a lot more bears um, because man, that corn you know at that time of the year is so important for them. So that has a big influence. Um, so we don't see so much from the beach nut end, but we see a huge influence from standing corn.
1: Well, that's really interesting, especially um, myself as an agronomist. Um, I work throughout a lot of uh, the state of Pennsylvania here, and harvest was generally speaking late for most of my growers, and we had a lot of corn that. Was standing into no- November and even into December until we finished that harvest. So you must have been in a just a unique situation in the the location you were that corn was harvested that quickly.
0: <clears throat> yeah, you know what? And they got on a bunch of the stuff early, and then um, I don't remember now was if it was wet or what happened. But anyway, we had some late as well, so there was a lull kind of in the in the middle of harvest season where they just couldn't get on it. But um, the stuff that was all right around us was gone the earliest I ever remember it. So, uh, uh, you know, congr- kudos to the farmers for being able to do that because, uh, you know, that. You know they've got to be able to get that off to to make their money too, so um it's uh it's just strange to see how that that has changed you know the timing of that you know over my lifetime so very different than it was you know uh, two or three decades ago.
1: It certainly has, and I think that does a that that's going to be really good for us to lead into really what I wanted to talk about with you today, and you know that's this time of year, and just general weather patterns and winter survivability of deer so you know we've had some varying weather conditions go across our state here in the past you know month and a half i can think back to when i was hunting with my flintlock muzzleloader in january we had some pretty substantial snow and cold weather and that followed up with some ice storms and stuff and it's different levels of severity across the state so i mean i guess just to kick this off and start As a biologist and a deer manager, and you know, you have a, a property that you've worked on and, and you've had people within camp work on, you know, at what point do you see or have thoughts and concerns about weather forecasts upcoming? Um, I guess specifically, when you see a forecast, like, at what point do you say, oh, no, that's not good, that would be detrimental?
0: But for the most part, you know where we are in Pennsylvania. Um, as long as you're not in the northwest corner of the state that that gets all that lake effect snow, um, most of Pennsylvania is the winter weather is is not so severe to really negatively impact deer survival. Um, Prior to to my job with NDA, um, I was the state of New Hampshire's deer and bear biologist. And in New Hampshire, you know, you truly are at the northern limit of whitetail range. And uh, so there, we absolutely lost deer, you know, just because of just too much snow or too much cold or just too long of a winter. Um, I went to grad school at the University of New Hampshire. We did a bunch of of energetic work with deer to understand how they survive winter, and you know, and, and how, how much of a fat supply they take into the winter. And, and what we learned is, you know, deer really survive winter very similar to the way bears do, um, with the exception of they don't go to sleep, okay. but they put on all this tissue fat in the fall, and then they live off that during the winter. And what we found was, adult deer go into a winter with about or at least healthy adult deer, go into winter with about a 90-day fat supply. So in Pennsylvania, you know, most of our winters just simply are not longer than 90 days. So, uh, you know, we get some bad weather, we get some ice, sure, that that definitely impacts deer. But for the most part, you know, we're far enough south in their range that uh, as long as we do a good job and make sure that they can go into winter with an adequate fat reserve, uh, very few deer succumb to winter mortality in Pennsylvania um, outside of our, you know, uh, those that see the the lake effect snow in northwestern PA.
1: Well, that's uh, great information. Um, that is something that I think a lot of people probably don't realize because I feel um, I feel that there's there's people who can be landowners and managers that can be reactionary when they see a storm coming and and out of the goodness of their heart they're concerned about it but that's that's the type of information the science that we we rely on heavily and i'm i'm thankful to hear that so you know a well-managed property is gonna is gonna provide deer with those uh with the, the fat reserves that they need to get them through that 90 days um now let's let's transition this up a second and if you were off of your property, and let's say we were going to another part of the state that has very poor habitat quality, very poor um, timber management, anything like that—that's not conducive for wildlife leading into the winter time. Does that change your thought process or concern?
0: Yeah, it absolutely does, and uh and I, I have seen plenty of dead deer in places in Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, early in the spring, trout fishing. You know, kind of in some of our state forests and some of the big woods areas where, you know, there was just far too many deer for what food was available. Those deer just didn't have those adequate fat reserves going into winter. So, you know, some of these listeners might have just heard my last comment say, man, this guy's crazy. You know, I've seen dead deer. I have, I have as well. And, uh, and the answer to that, Mitchell, is, hey, let's shoot some more of those deer so that we ha- balance that deer herd with the habitat. And at the same time, let's enhance that habitat so that it provides more food for the, for the deer herd that's there. So, you know, we want to attack that from both ways because the worst thing we want to do is send, you know, have too many deer to the amount of food that's available into winter and bad shape. You know, that, that's not good for deer. It's not certainly not good for us as hunters uh, or anybody who, who cares about our wildlife resources.
1: Certainly. So on a property that's well managed and has a lot of time like yours that, <clears throat> that you have there in Northern PA, um, what naturally occurring food sources are you planning for when you're putting your management program together? What naturally occurring food sources are you seeing deer use in that property? Are you trying to promote for this time of year?
0: I really take a look at all of the, the habitat for deer and i break it into three components. One being the forested component, uh, one being an old field or an early successional vegetation component. Those are things in like uh, broadleaf plants. Think of flowering plants, stuff that's not woody. It's still herbaceous. Um, and then the third component are, are food plots. So what I do and what I encourage folks to do you know, across the country, whether you're in Pennsylvania or Maine or Iowa, Florida or anywhere else, is Take a look at what's there and make sure that you are managing each of those different vegetative components properly so that you can provide food year-round for deer. So from a deer end here now in the winter, I make sure during the year that in our forested environment that we have some mature forest to provide thermal cover, but we also make sure that we have an abundant young forest to provide that food and cover down closer to the ground. A a big component of a deer's winter diet is literally, you know, dry uh leaves, hardwood leaves. Now, you're looking, hey, Kippy, you know, like how much nutrition is in those? Very little. However, by deer eating those leaves and the buds off trees, you know, seedlings that are down within that, that feeding zone, that provides enough uh food for deer at this time of the year to allow them to make it to spring on that fat supply. So with that deer aren't growing now so all they need to do is just be able to slow the use of that fat they do that by changing behavior you know they don't they're not active as much that they spend particularly the coldest times of the day bedded Um, but one thing that they do get out of eating that, that low quality food is what's called the heat of digestion so as deer are digesting food heat is given off. Deer use that heat to maintain body temperature, which then they don't have to use the fat reserves. So I make sure that through some timber work, there's a plenty of food like that for deer to eat right now.
1: Right, right. You know, I think it's really interesting when it it comes to a lot of things about management and properties and things that people do. You know, I think it's pretty common that a lot of mindsets go towards food plots. They go towards ag land and you know, you brought up earlier in this conversation about corn being harvested in September in your area. And a lot of people think that um, there's there's still a lot of grain left over in those fields, and when you see deer in fields this time of year, um, they're 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 digging up that excess grain. And when all reality uh, combines are extremely efficient, you know we wouldn't have farmers that would be sustainable if we didn't have efficient equipment trying to do the best we can to harvest every acre to its maximum potential. And when you're talking about the timing from September into February, you know what I commonly see when I've scouted crop fields and see deer digging in those, what I typically see is they're actually digging for things like henbit chickweed, which I don't know anything as far as the nutritional value, but I see them eat that as well as sometimes I've been curious if they're actually eating the fodder and the, the leafy vegetation that's left over from that. And that kind of sparked that when you talked about eating dry buds and leaves in forested areas.
0: Yeah, you're right with the uh, the efficiency of, of combines today. I grew up on a dairy farm, and I can vividly remember as a kid with our one row, and then when we upgraded to the two row corn picker, uh, that that was a Cadillac. <laughs> I felt like we were the luckiest people in the world going to that. But uh, I, I vividly remember watching kernels of corn, or you know, fall out of that, and uh, you know, we would miss some ears that would fall out of the grain wagon. There was a lot that was left in the field for at that point, you know deer turkeys uh there were still pheasants here then and, and others so uh there was there was a, a fair amount of food left that's not the case at all today you can get done you know a 10 20 or 50 acre field that's been combined and uh, just about you know if you're lucky maybe fill a coffee can with the amount of kernels that are left so yeah very little amounts of that corn are left which provides a good opportunity for you know anybody who has an ability to plant food plots to to make sure that they do plant something that that provides food in the winter. For example, I always plant some brassicas uh, on our farm. You know, it's a provides good hunting opportunity. Brassicas, you know, being a collection of the leafy plants like turnips and kale and canola and rape. But, uh, good for during the hunting season attraction but even right now you know it's one of the only things we can plant that stays green so uh you know i have deer in some of our brassica plots every day right now digging down through uh, you know a foot or two feet of snow to be able to get to those brassicas now is that the way you should carry a deer herd absolutely not provide enough food through your habitat work in the woods and these old fields to carry them then use your food plots kind of as a supplement or ice cream I'm sorry, the, the cherry on top of the ice cream. You know, if you try to carry a deer herd on food plots, as you know, Mitchell, you're, you're going to be in big trouble. But we can use those to supplement all of the other food, you know, that we provide through good habitat work. And so that's what's happening right now in our place with those deer eating those brassicas. Now, not everybody has the ability to plant food plots or, you know, the ability to plant enough of those, you know, to have some still around in February, mm-hmm. you know, we're very fortunate. And really the only reason we have them now is because our winter was so mild at the start that, uh, you know, deer weren't in them hardly at all during November or December. So, uh, but, uh, it's, I'm glad that I do have them now, given how cold it is to at least provide, you know, an additional food source for them.
1: Certainly. And let's keep on that topic in food plots. Cause you sparked a thought for me. So, you know, here recently, um, you know, I, I'm. You know, I, I help growers uh, maximize potential when they're growing uh, a wheat crop, for instance. And you know, I know that wheat um, will grow in soil temperature somewhere in that 38 to 41 degrees. So um, soil temperature, it'll still actively be growing at a slow, slow rate. Rye, I think, is a little bit less than that. But you know, those are species that I'm very common with in the agricultural community. But I never really considered until recently as a, as a food plot are part of your food plot program and you know you'd brought up about uh, you know crops being harvested and planting food plots then um, typically what I find in a lot of agriculture areas let's say it's a it's a landowner that has a farm that they rent crop land out and a lot of the time they're they're seeing crops get harvested so late that it's hard to plant things like a brassica or something like that but one of the best things that they can plant would be a cereal grain and you know i've kind of seen cereal grains being just a good portion of that as far as something that's actively growing and deer eating it's really not a glamour crop but i mean what's your thoughts on cereal grains uh this time of year and as part of a food plot program
0: Uh, They are excellent. And and many people overlook those because, you know, they're not as sexy as some of the other food (laughs) plot plants, but deer love cereal grains. Deer like oats the best. Um, However, you know, oats winter kill and, you know, here in the North, Uh, but oats are a great component, you know, of any clover plantings, you know, to act as a nurse crop, you can plant oats by themselves, you know, for tremendous attraction during the fall. Um, But then, Two things are, that I always plant um, is it either winter wheat or winter rye. Deer like them both. They're both good for deer. They're both relatively inexpensive to be able to plant. They are easy to plant and to, and to get to grow. It's nice from an agricultural end because they're used a lot for cover crops, you know, on commercial ag uh producers fields so that's providing a great food source for, for deer and other wildlife uh, during the winter so i'm a big fan of wheat and rye um between the two rye, i mean, wheat is a little better for deer particularly if uh if you plant onless varieties of right. wheat. deer will eat the vegetation of either wheat or rye um, they're not going to eat the seed head of rye and they won't eat the seed head of wheat if it has awns or those you know those hairs on it. But if you can plant an awnless variety of wheat, you will get the benefit of all that vegetation that they eat. And then once it goes to seed, you know that adds about you know thousand to fifteen hundred pounds of seed heads per acre. That's all free food for deer, and they literally will eat every one of them next year. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of cereal grains, Mitchell.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. And you know, you said you, you said it best. You said that you know uh, wheat and rye and any of those cereal grains are really not the sexy glamour crops. You know, I think about glamour crops. You think about summer annuals that you know they're they're producing a ton of tonnage, and you know you hear this this number in protein and this number in digestibility, and you know those are all well and good. But when you're talking about this time of year, you're talking about uh, January, February, March, and you talk about the available food sources, Um, you know, I've seen rye and wheat forage samples come back this time of year and you're seeing, you know, 9 to 11 percent protein or something like that. And while that might sound low relative to other stuff, it's the highest thing this time of year. And I've personally really loved to see those as
0: part of our food plot program. Absolutely. And they're the first things that green up in the spring. So it provides deer that food source before a lot of other stuff, you know, starts growing. So yeah, they're good in the fall, they're good through the winter, and then they are great first thing out of the gate in the spring. So a lot of value to those cereal. Oh,
1: certainly. And you know, you said it best there like clover is a wonderful food plot but a lot of people say clover is the first thing that greens up in spring but if you compare it to wheat and rye it's actually wheat and rye that are green up first before clover and i I think that could be just a missed opportunity but we're getting a little bit on a on a tangent here and it's just so easy for me just because i love to talk about this stuff but you know i kind of want to shift gears and and go over towards uh properties that maybe aren't well managed, and people have a reactionary thought to this weather systems that have come in. And uh, a lot of landowners, and it, what's strange for me, and I don't understand this, I guess it's, uh, People will sometimes ask me whether they're my, my agricultural clients or neighborhood friends that know I'm into agriculture and they'll ask me about feeding deer. Well, the, f- the first thought that comes to my mind is I don't know anything about feeding deer. It's not in my wheelhouse, it's not in my career. Um, but I get asked a lot, and people um, will, you know, bale hay and they'll take wrapped bales of alfalfa and all kinds of other things. And my, my initial reaction makes me cringe. So I, I, I want you to take the floor and just kind of take take your perspective when people get into that reactionary feeding and how that might have adverse effects.
0: Yeah. um, Winter feeding or, you know, placing food for deer, you know, once temperatures get cold or snow is deep, um, it seems like the simplest thing in the world to help the deer herd, man, it's cold. They're hungry. Let me give them something to eat. Um, I get it. You know, people want to help others. And we think that food, you know, is often a great way to do that. Um, The unfortunate thing with deer, though, is deer's stomach and digestive system are very different than ours. They're not designed to easily adapt to a new food and particularly not easily adapt to a new food of much higher quality than what they have been eating. Most deer right now are eating leaves, buds, maybe some leftover ag stuff. But for the most part, it's stuff that's pretty low quality. So anytime a deer shifts to a new food source... It has to eat that food source for one to two weeks before it gets any value out of it from a nutritional standpoint. It gets that heat of digestion, but it can't pull the nutrients out because during that time, it allows all of the microflora in the stomach, basically the bugs that are in their stomach, to adjust over to that new food to say, okay, now we can pull the nutrients out of this. So what happens is any time that deer are feeding. They're always eating a bunch of different things. And that is to make sure that they can have a variety of different diets at any time of the year and be able to, to make most use of them. Well, right now is when their diet is most limited and most restricted. So there's only a few things that they can eat and really make use of. So I tell you that to say when people right now start dumping food for deer, corn is often the worst, a bag of corn out. Corn, you know, was very high energy. The nutritional quality are, are very different from browse buds that type of thing, and when deer eat that, they obviously they're hungry now. I'll I'll give you that. You know they will overeat or they're going to eat all they can of that, and it literally can shock their system, and it can shock their system to the point that it can cause acidosis in their stomach, which makes the deer sick, and it ultimately can can kill the deer. So people say, should I be feeding deer right now? Um the answer is no you know the, the way to to make sure deer have enough to eat is get them fat in the fall but right now one of the worst things that we can do when the weather is really bad is go dump something for them to eat
1: Right, right. Um, you know, you you already touched on that uh, the corn. You know, I, I've I've heard of places that'll go up with a dump truck and back it up to a grain bin and fill that dump truck up with corn just to do exactly what you said, and that that I've I've known about, and it makes me cringe because I've I've. Learned about acidosis and what that does, but one thing that I'm not very familiar with, and it's kind of newer to me. Um, I have one of my clients in particular that you know he's generally a row cropper, but he also he also has some some straight alfalfa hay that he makes and uh, he sells it. He sell he feeds some to his beef cows, but he, he's generally selling it. And he said one of his biggest marketing um, things that he has is he's taking wrapped alfalfa and there's guys at hunting clubs in parts of the state that will come to him and buy wrapped alfalfa and put it out. And like, I've heard of other places in the country that do that. But, you know, my mindset goes to, you know, I remember learning back in my biology classes that, you know, elk are grazers that occasionally browse and deer are browsers that occasionally graze. And in my mind, we're trying to treat deer like a, like a, like an elk or, or cattle or something and, and get them to graze. And I have no idea what benefits and negative things can happen feeding wrapped alfalfa to
0: a deer. Yeah. A lot of people will feed bales of hay like that. Deer will definitely eat and make use of those. And but deer are very different from a cow. <clears throat> cattle are designed to be able to bring in large quantities of food you know, and then be able to digest those. Um, deer, on the other hand, they, they're technically listed as a concentrate selector. So the, you know, they're not truly a browser. They're not truly a grazer. What that concentrate selector means is they pick the highest quality parts of the plants that they mm-hmm. eat. That's what they take in because their stomach is so much smaller than a cow. Like, so they can't have the same diet as a cow. What that means is that they will absolutely make use of those alfalfa bales. But what they're eating is the leaves off the alfalfa, they can't digest to the same way a cow can, that stem. So, you know, alfalfa is made to grow tall, cut it, dry it, bale it. And a cow can use that stem. A deer can't. So deer will absolutely pick through those bales. And that's why from a a bale of hay that people want to give deer, they can make much better use of a bale of alfalfa hay or clover hay as opposed to a grass A, eh? something like Timothy, right. orchard grass, et cetera. So those legume bales, alfalfa and clover, deer will absolutely make use of those. Now the problem comes in with those is that deer are, are naturally will feed spread out, you know, over a large landscape. Anytime that we put something out to feed like that, it brings a lot of deer into close proximity. You end up with aggressive deer, you know, the dominant deer get to eat first, you know, they will fight the other deer, they will kick the other mm-hmm. deer. Um, and in many cases, that's not good. But if a disease is in the area, now you have a really big deal because you're congregating all of these deer into a small area to make it easier for the disease to spread. So that's one thing that we really have to watch out for. Mm, that's a great point.
1: Um, yeah, I've heard uh, I've heard of that. And I've also heard of people trying to um, There's a a big push in my area of some very progressive farmers who uh, who will plant cover crops for the soil, and they're planting multi-species cover crops. And there's some people that have actually been trying to market uh, their wrapped cover crops, these multi-species, for cattle feed, and that's somewhat been a success, and it's been a profitability standpoint for some of these growers because they're taking a double crop off, but um, there's this the exact same thing comes where there's deer managers or or landowners or whatever that hear the species that are in those and think the exact same thing with the hay and i'm and it's it's no different um with that type of wrapped forage than it would be with the alfalfa is what
0: i'm gathering that's correct yep so if you're you know Elk make great use of orchard grass and timothy and a lot of that stuff that cattle do, uh, but not deer. Yeah. Yeah. Rye grass, all that stuff. You know, uh, deer are, it's of extremely low quality to deer relative to, to cattle or elk. So yeah, the broadly stuff good for deer, the grass is not so much. Certainly
1: um what about like man-made um feeding programs like we've got you know deer farms and fences that do their research and they have their supplemental feeding programs uh is there any is it better if like if people would use not that i'm recommending anybody do that but if, if people would go that route and they're feeding would that be better than corn or is that still no different and is a big no-no
0: it's it's still a big no no. Um, for the the biggest part is the stuff that they're feeding, you know, the, the pelleted rations and all that at those farms. So that's all in in most cases enclosed feeding containers, so that it's not getting wet and rotting and and all that. Whereas you know if you try to feed that, you know, to wildlife, either a it's being spread out where it can get wet and mold, or b it's in feeders of which then you are even more congregating deer into you know so that they're eating out of exactly the same place so yeah same thing that has all those disease risks with it and in addition you know people think man if i feed here you know it's fun to see deer i get it it's fun to photograph deer but what happens is and and we documented this in new hampshire at those feeding sites, in most cases, you had increased number of deer vehicle collisions around them. Mm. We had increased predation because as soon as they're all under, it's far easier for, for coyotes to kill deer when they're congregated at feed sites than when they're spread out. And you end up with, you know, in many cases, domestic dogs chasing those deer. Mm. So it uh, you know, it's it's not good for that. And, and what people need to realize is, you know, deer are designed to lose weight during the winter. When I was in graduate school at the University of New Hampshire at our deer research facility, you know, by law, we had to keep our feeders filled all the time before the animal care and use committees, you know, to make sure we weren't you know, doing anything bad to the the captive deer there. But, uh, you know, during the summer, our deer herd may eat, say, two or 300 pounds of food a day. The same deer herd during the winter might eat 20 pounds of food a day. You know, they're just designed to get heavy in the fall and then live off that during the winter. So even with full feeders, captive deer will also lose weight during the course of the winter. It's just how they evolved. So that often you know, lets people, under if, if people understand that, it makes them feel a little bit better about, okay, you know, yeah, those deer don't have as much to eat now. Well, you know what? They are going to compensate for that by reducing activity and that. So uh, they don't need as much of that high quality food like they had or like they need during spring and summer and fall. So uh, hopefully that can help you know, ease people's minds a little bit and then help them make the decision to not feed deer during the winter.
1: That's really interesting. And I don't know that I've actually specifically heard that, but that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, one of the things we talk, you know, there's, there's other states that have feeding or, or feeding is allowed or baiting is allowed during hunting season. And uh, one thing I wondered from your perspective is if you've got a state that allows you to feed deer 365 days a year. And while, while I'm, I'm still with you that I don't think that this, this man-made supplemental feeding is a good thing in most cases. Is it less of a problem if those deer have that as part of their diet on a routine basis throughout the year compared to where Pennsylvania, I think our regulations state that 30 days prior to hunting season, you have to remove all um, su- you know, supplemental feeds, blocks, minerals, stuff like that. And then you're not allowed to have that out until after the hunting season, or at least it can't be actively hunted, I think, is the way that that regulation reads. So is it at least less of a concern? And, you know, if Pennsylvania managers and landowners see that, maybe they can understand that better in other states compared to here. Is is that something I sh- I'm thinking of correct?
0: Yeah, so from a disease standpoint, it's not better to be able to feed year round. From a diet standpoint for deer, it is better if they can feed year round rather than just dumping food during the winter. Because as we talked earlier, deer need to eat that food for a week to two, you know, for the microflora transition over. So at least if you are providing food throughout the year to a deer, you know, it's not getting that big shock to its system in the winter because it's been eating it. So, you know, people who do feed during the winter um, in states where it's legal, you know, I encourage people, don't do this. But if you are definitely going to do it, make sure you start feeding in the fall before the snow is flying and then feed all winter long to spring green up. You know, let deer tell you when they don't need it anymore by stopping coming. You know, the, the absolute worst thing we can do is put food out in the winter once deer are, you know, in bad shape or in, in the, you know, a harsh winter and then stop before green up. So that's those year round programs. They, they do have uh, advantages from a dietary standpoint on at least they're never shocking that deer system. It's something that it's accustomed to and, you know, and some people will say, well, why you tell me don't put corn out? Deer feeding corn fields all fall And uh, and yes, that is true because they transition slowly into those standing corn and then they'll eat that, you know, until it's gone. Whereas, you know, if they are still eating corn on a very regular basis and you put some out, very low risk, you know, of, of shocking their system. It's when they have not been eating that and all of a sudden they get a lot of corn dumped from a bag that the real problems arise
1: right and that makes so much sense to me uh it has a lot to do with food availability and that selective um feeders that you talked about you know if if they've got it in the fall they can select it as they want rather than this is the only thing left so that makes a lot of sense to me so let's uh let's just touch real quickly before i let you go here let's touch real quickly on if somebody's going to feed this time year or provide supplemental food um what i've learned from you know qdma nda is that uh, chainsaw is a fantastic way to provide food this time of year so would you just touch a little bit on that and thoughts on creating uh hinge cuts or flush cuts
0: for brows absolutely and you are correct That that's the single best thing we can do to feed deer right now is to drop some you know, some smaller trees to provide deer access to the tops of them that's where all those buds are and they will make use of them immediately and uh, we do that in concert you know with uh, a, a forest stand improvement program so hey let's let's go to an area that we want to either provide more sunlight to the forest floor so we get a flush of stuff this spring we can cut some trees down there hey you know maybe we want to Uh, direct deer movement to a a certain stand that we have. Let's hinge cut some smaller trees, you know, to help direct deer down a certain way. So there's a lot of things that we can do there. But the goal is let's get those, you know, the tops of the trees where those buds are down to ground level so that deer can make use of them. That's the perfect food for right now. It provides cover for deer as well. It will enhance that area, you know, this spring and summer and then help us next fall. So that's a win-win all the way around to be doing some of that habitat work, particularly right now, because unlike corn, that's not high quality food that shocks their system. So you can put all of that that you want at the ground, let them gorge themselves on it. That's not going to hurt them at all.
1: Right, uh, we got a. We have very diverse forest systems within Pennsylvania. You know, beech, birch, maple, oak, oak, hickory. We got mixed in cherry. We have some aspen. We got all kinds of stuff in our state. Um, just on a general level, then, you know, what are some of those species that you would prefer to see cut if you have them for the the local deer herd?
0: Yeah, there, there's a lot of species that deer will make use of. So what I tell folks is. If you are going to cut the tree down, if it's something you're going to completely remove, it's great to to, to do that with species that stump sprout. I Meaning, when that tree's cut, you know they will send up a whole bunch of new sprouts right out of that stump. So it still has that whole root system of that big tree, but now so things like red maple. Mm-hmm yellow birch they are perfect for that um particularly red maple because they are prolific stump sprouter um deer love red maple buds extremely valuable tree for deer commercially not all that valuable so you're not worried about you know losing timber value from it and and they grow very quickly so that's all really really good stuff for deer so i love to cut things like that down um from a, a hinge cutting perspective Some trees just tend to hinge a lot better than others because they they tend to hold there a little bit. At the end of the day, though, Mitchell, I tell people is don't get so caught up on a certain species that it limits what you do. You get some of those trees to the ground so that you can provide that food and then take advantage of all that extra sunlight there this spring to grow even more deer food. And you're going to be farther ahead than trying to get so caught up with. Ooh, should I cut this species or should I not cut that one?
1: Yeah, that's spot on. Um, You know, one thing you said about hinge cutting. um, uh, What I've learned is this time of year, you know, people like to cut trees, and it makes sense. This is a time of year it's comfortable to cut trees rather than doing in the summer. But I find a lot of species are actually hard to get to hinge. They seem like they just want to break off just because of, you know, they're dormant. We don't have sap flowing as well, and some species are difficult. I'm fortunate one species i have really liked to utilize on on our property we have a lot of black gum and it seems like that's a species that i can still get to hinge this time of year and and deer seem to love
0: i'm a huge fan of black gum um it's a great wildlife tree you know has that soft mast uh there there are many species of wildlife it's a great tree so yeah i'm a i'm a big big black gum fan Sure, <clears throat> sure. Um,
1: one one thing I'm thinking back to late season hunting, you know, this year I, d- I didn't fill a buck tag and I hunted right up until the end of late season. And I kind of saw that transition of how deer use our property to where they kind of go in their winter ranges. And the one thought I had is if I'm going out now, um, let's say we do have a winter concern um, and deer moving around. Is there a concern about me cutting trees or providing food in one of these areas that's like too far away from their winter ranges, you know, whether that's a thermal pocket. Like the area I'm thinking of has a lot of heavy laurel where I typically find deer go into and in they winter. So if, if if I'm putting food sources in another area, is that actually a negative aspect for those deer because they have to leave those thermal pockets?
0: No, not this time of the year. You know, if, if they had to go through, you know, two to three feet of snow – then there, there could be some concern with that. But, uh, you know, with the amount of snow that we have in Pennsylvania, or at least through most of the state, uh, that would not be a concern, Mitchell. Um, it's always nice to provide some fresh cuttings right near, you know, the best thermal cover that they have, uh, particularly during February, which is, you know, the hardest month of the year mm-hmm. for them. But, um, you know, if, if there's other areas that are conducive to cutting, and, you know, and that's where you want to be able to do some work, um, that's totally fine doing it there. That, that's much better than not doing it at all.
1: Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. And hopefully that's, that's all questions that other people have thought and that, that answers their questions for it. Uh, the last thing I, I wanted to touch on, you touched on it a little bit when you provide, uh, when you provide piles of food, it can open up to a greater predation potential and i remember a couple of years ago i went to a seminar that uh, dr Dwayne Diefenbach and a couple other well-respected individuals were at in the state of pennsylvania and uh you know one of the things they said and i think i agree with them is that we don't necessarily have a big predator problem in pennsylvania you know we have coyotes we have bear um but it, they did not feel as though it was a major concern at that time for over predation. Um, so I kind of lead into, you know, I've seen an increase of predators on our property and throughout other places that I hunt. Maybe you have seen that as well. Um, I, I just wanted to like reiterate that when you provide that food, like that's probably the worst time for predation next to fawning. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, that, that's the one time of the year, that, or the main time of the year, that the predators would kill adult deer. Um, most of the predation that, that we see in Pennsylvania, um, you know, it was on fawns, mm-hmm. and that's not just in Pennsylvania. That's in many other states in the east. You know, once you get to places that have wolves and mountain lions, yeah, then you, you start seeing some adult predation. But otherwise, you know, it's mostly on fawns. So the one exception of that is, you know, once we get into the the winter months, if deer are in poor shape, that is when coyotes you know, uh, can, can take advantage of that. And, you know, coyotes breed, you know, in the winter, January right. and February. Coyotes actually will, will pair bonds. So the male and female will run together. Basically, they're, they're proving their worth to each other to breed. So, you know, that corresponds with the time when, you know, hey, our deer are, are seeing, you know, some of the hardest, you know, conditions of the year. So that, that can make some of that predation a little worse if conditions are bad and if deer are weak. Now, if deer are, are very healthy, then uh, you know the amount of adult deer that we lose to coyotes, you know, is, is very little. Once you get farther north, you know, the Adirondacks, uh, the Green Mountains of Vermont, the White Mountains of New Hampshire, then winter severity is so much higher than here that some of that starts coming into play. But uh, for for most of Pennsylvania, yeah, we we don't lose a whole lot of adults uh, to predation. Now that doesn't mean you're not going to find a dead deer that, that a coyote is eating on but uh you know that they may have been you know died of something else first or been injured so, um, do, does predation on adults happen? Absolutely, it does, Mitchell. But overall, it's not that big of a deal—at least not at a, at a wildlife management level where our, our Game Commission manages.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great way of describing that. I, th- I think it's all relative. You know, a lot of people like to put emphasis if they find one, then it becomes a problem. But when you look at the the general population, the general trends within our state—that uh, you just explained that so great and so well for me to understand, and hopefully for listeners to understand. That when you look at the the grand scheme of things, you know we're, we're not overly concerned. Does it happen? Yes, but now that's great. <clears throat> um, Kip, I can't thank you enough for uh, for coming on and sharing your your knowledge. You know, one reason that I really wanted to have you on is not just because of your wealth of knowledge, but you're you're a Pennsylvania native and you're. You understand what's going on in the state of Pennsylvania as good as anybody, um, and I I really appreciate that. So, I mean, the last question I had for you was, um, what's happening with the National Deer Association? Anything that you're really excited about in the upcoming 2022 year that you'd like to share with us?
0: Sure. Uh, we, We just published our 2022 deer report. Um, anybody that, that's interested in deer, uh, th- this is truly a state-of-the-union look at what's going on deer hunting and deer management programs across the United States. Uh, they can go to our website at deerassociation.com. It's a free download. Gives you you know, state-by-state look at buck harvest, antlerless deer harvest, age structures of those harvest, breaks the harvest down by bows and guns and, and muzzleloaders looks at the biggest issues impacting deer so uh, anybody who cares about deer or is interested in deer at all that's a that's a really neat document and and they can get it free at our website
1: that is a great document and thank you for bringing that up hopefully a lot of people will take advantage of that <clears throat> um, kip again thank you so much for your time i really appreciate uh, you coming on to pennsylvania woodsman here and uh, i hope you have a have a wonderful west your rest of your winter and can get out and do some habitat work here soon
0: All right. Well, thank you, Mitchell. I've enjoyed it. It's been good talking with you, and uh, I look forward uh, to to being able to do that, and uh, good luck to you. I hope you have a great 2022 as well. Thank
1: you. Take care, Kip.